This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castiel. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America. On this edition of the program, our periodic update on Africa. We examine the crises in Ethiopia, Sudan, and the Sahel. Hello again. I'm Carol Castiel. Ethiopia is mired in civil war, pitting the ethnic Amhara against the Tigrinya people. What started as a political dispute between Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed and the leaders of the Tigray region over elections in 2020 has erupted in violence that has riven the once relatively stable and promising country. The international community is urging Prime Minister Ahmed to accelerate dialogue toward a negotiated ceasefire, improve humanitarian access across Ethiopia, and address human rights concerns. The conflict has killed thousands of people and displaced several million from their homes. In neighboring Sudan, the military staged a coup in October 2021, interrupting an official transition to civilian rule after decades of authoritarianism. However, Reuters news agency reports that frequent, mostly peaceful protests have lately been met with live gunfire and tear gas. Dozens of Sudanese judges and prosecutors have condemned the killing of more than 70 protesters and have called for criminal investigations. Al Monitor reports that the Biden administration has refused to deliver planned debt relief and financial aid to the government of Sudan until the military junta restores a civilian-led government. Finally, in the Sahel, a drought-prone stretch of land south of the Sahara, the spread of extremist groups and unending economic and political instability are taking a devastating toll on the region. VOA's Jeff Zeldin reports that the EU ambassador to the United States says the violent extremism and worsening humanitarian situation in the Sahel and the wider West African region threatens the future of the entire African continent and the world. The biggest concern has been Mali, reports Selden, where terrorists linked to groups like Islamic State and Al-Qaeda have continued to make inroads and where the military government, which seized power in August 2020, postponed elections scheduled for this February until 2026. Well, for more on the political and humanitarian crises in Ethiopia, Sudan and the Sahel, we turn to two distinguished regional analysts who make their debut on this edition of Encounter. Ambassador Rama Yad is Senior Director of the Africa Center and Senior Fellow for the Europe Center at the Atlantic Council, and that's a policy group based here in Washington. Prior to joining the council, Ambassador Yad served as French Deputy Minister for Foreign Affairs and Human Rights. She is a native of Senegal. And Mbemba Dizolele, Senior Fellow and Director of the Africa Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. That's a policy group also based here in Washington. Prior to CSIS, he was the Africa Senior Advisor at the International Republican Institute. And both panelists join me via Microsoft Teams. Welcome to the program. Ambassador Yad, I'd like to start with you. Let's start with Ethiopia, the horrible conflict that is going on, the lack of resolutions. What and who do you believe are the main obstacles to a negotiated reciprocal ceasefire? And to what extent do you hold Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed responsible for the prolonged conflict? And that, of course, isn't to absolve the TPLF, the Tigray People's Liberation Front. But couldn't this Nobel Peace Laureate be doing more to stop the violence, promote 
a negotiated settlement? How do you see it? Of course, Carol, I see the a huge responsibility from the government since Prime Minister is in charge. But as you know, uh, the violations of human rights are everywhere from both sides. Recently, that is the last move on this uh, tragedy. Uh, President Biden spoke to uh, Abiy Ahmed a few days ago, raising concerns over airstrikes in uh, Ethiopia's northern uh, Tigray region. 56 people died and he urged him to negotiate a ceasefire after 14 months of war. The call comes just a few days after the U.S. formally terminated Ethiopia from the trade program with uh, Africa because of those human rights violations. And this death toll is not new since even before that strike, since October, at least 146 people had been killed and many others injured in airstrikes in Tigray. So this conflict has not been the short, brief, blitzkrieg promised by Ethiopian prime minister. And a few uh, weeks ago, we thought that everything would stop because the rebel forces were very close to Addis Abeba. And that move had raised hopes because just right after they said they will withdraw, but nothing happened. And there are so many displaced people, two million. There are so many airstrikes since then. So I really think that the main obstacle is the blast effect, the regional consequences. The crisis is spreading beyond Ethiopia. And that's what is my main concern here. And following up with you, Ambassador Yad, you mentioned displaced people, even Eritrean refugees are caught up in this. And of course, we know the role of Eritrea has also been not helpful, to say the least. What are the powers and the limits to the influence of, for example, external actors like the African Union envoy, former Nigerian President Olusogun Obasanjo, Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta, and what about the United States, arguably the most important international player in this whole effort to try to diffuse this situation and bring the players to the negotiating table because it is threatening, as you say, to not only destroy Ethiopia, but spill over into the region. Yes, the international players have um, an important role in this crisis. First, as you mentioned, Obasanjo Kenyatta try to push the actors to negotiate. It is the African scenario. I mean, how Africans can solve their own problems. So we'll see if they can do something, but we cannot avoid an African role in this situation. But on the other hand, since the conflict has worsened, the situation with the neighbors, uh, the situation is not so simple. The conflict has indeed worsened the situation with Eritrea, which shares a long border with Tigray, and whose troops, under the leadership of Afwerki, support Abiy Ahmed. And it spilled over into Somalia too, from where Ethiopia gradually withdrew its troops, traditionally engaged in Amisom. And they left the country to face the fight against the Shababs, who are still there. More broadly, the federal army has been purged of its Tigrayan soldiers, including UN peacekeepers and the African Union, who has its headquarters in Addis Abeba. And the refugee situation is also concerning, the most important in the world, with two to three million people split in numerous countries, a tragedy for several years. And like I said, what makes things very complicated is that beyond that unsurprising destabilization of the horn, the current crisis highlights a dimension rarely mentioned, but much broader, which finally appears here. 
as elsewhere in Africa in recent months with the coup in Mali, Chad, Sudan and Guinea. The incursion on the African scene of new regional powers and the intensification of competition between them on an African battleground more strategic than ever. From Egypt to Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Israel, China, you know. So Abbasanjo, Kenyatta and others, they have to deal with all these countries now because now they are all involved because they are expanding their influence on the continent and start with the horn that is so strategic, historically, geographically, on security, on business. So that's why I think these re-emerging regional powers reveal more than just a simple destabilization of the horn. I think it is a new global geopolitical order and whose centrality is African. Which makes it all the more urgent to rein in this conflict. Turning to you, Mvema Dizoleli, with regard to Ethiopia, the current stalemate, how do you see what and who are the main obstacles to a negotiated reciprocal ceasefire? Do you hold Abi Ahmed, the prime minister, more accountable for the current state of affairs, notwithstanding the role of the TPLF, the Tigray People's Liberation Front and atrocities that they have been accused of? Ethiopia is a complicated situation. To say complicated, it's an understatement. It's complex. I think it's like a Rubik's Cube. You know, when you take a Rubik's Cube, you move one piece, the other piece out of place. Big country, very important country with tremendous ethnic diversity. So you ask me if I hold Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed responsible. It's not in my place to hold him responsible for that. Uh, he's doing the thing I presume he sees that are his responsibilities as the Prime Minister, as the head of that country. Regardless of what he's doing or how he sees the thing, we have a conflict in front of us. This conflict before us is a conflict that has big ethnic roots into it. It challenges the very, not the existence of Ethiopia as a country, but it challenges the model of governance that Ethiopia should have. In other words, as big as Ethiopia is, Ethiopia is the second most populated country on the continent with a diverse population that really in many ways represents Africa. It's a bit of Africa miniature. Different languages, different religions. People want to know, should we have a strong center? where everything is controlled from Addis? Should we have a federated system that is heavily ethnic-centered, which is what they've had since Melis came to power? Or should we have a structure that is semi-autonomous with different regions having a lot to say? So the conflict in Tigray is a big humanitarian disaster, catastrophe, need to be given all the attention that it's getting. Nevertheless, it's very complicated because for the African countries, for instance, how do they intervene? If the Ethiopian government says, well, Tigray is trying to secede and I need to keep my country together, what then the African Union calls exactly for that in the sense that African states, when they founded the uh, precursor of uh, the African Union, the OAU, had said that we should not tamper with the uh, colonial borders. So it's imperative in that sense for Abi to keep Ethiopia together. If Tigray was to break apart, that's a failure, that he will be regarded as the person who broke Ethiopia by his own people. Tigrayans, they have their own uh, grievances that they're trying to push. How does that work? They also seem to a certain prism by their own colleagues because the Tigrayans were in power for a long time. So there's all these passions that are issue. The other thing is, if you're going to bring African solutions to the problem, what leverage do Africans have? Former President Obasanjo, uh, former President of Nigeria, was the special envoy for the African Union there. He's highly respected by his peers, current president and former president, and he's been doing this kind of negotiations 
for a number of years now. He's worked in Congo, he's now working in Ethiopia. He's, they like him. They really appreciate him. I was part of a delegation that met with him in the summer. But he has a tough job. While he has access to Mekele in Tigray and he has access to Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, does he have the mean to move things in the ways that will be diffusing the conflict? That is not clear. The West has its own challenge. If you talk to Ethiopians, a lot of them are convinced for some reason that the West is behind Tigray. So there's information, there's propaganda, there's disinformation, there's all that together in that as well. So in the end, to me, if you had to ask me what is the way forward, the way forward is really a national dialogue. So I'm glad that they're speaking about the possibility of this, because there's so many issues that will come to the fore that they need to discuss. And you and me, as foreigners, it's very hard to, to understand fully what's happening in Ethiopia. There's so many layers. Every time you think you understand one thing, there's another issue. So Tigray is just the tip of the iceberg. After Tigray is resolved, there will be other issues with Oromia, with Meni Shango, with the Southern Nations, yes. and so on, Amara. So it's a big problem. I just wish Ethiopia the best of luck and foresight and fortitude. And they need the support of the international community. You are listening to Encounter on The Voice of America. Joining me via Microsoft Teams are Ambassador Rama Yad, Director of the Africa Center at the Atlantic Council, and Mvemba Dizolele, Director of the Africa Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And we are discussing the implications of conflict and instability in Ethiopia, Sudan, and in the Sahel region of West Africa. This is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available for free download on our website at voanews.com slash encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel VOA. Well, here's a shout out to a Facebook fan, Imran Abdullahi from Zamfara State in Northwest Nigeria. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to encounter at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page and also follow us on Twitter. Well, back to our discussion about Africa and turning back to you, Ambassador Yad. Let me now turn to Sudan. We witnessed this unfortunate turn of events last October where the military has aborted the democratic transition, launched a coup. The Sudanese people have risen up and have really become a vanguard to promote democracy. It's really been very heartening to many around the world. Where do you see this going? And to what extent can we reverse this coup and get back to the democratic transition? There is obviously a political deadlock in Sudan right now. The situation is a bit blurry after former Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdok stepped down from office in early January, leaving behind him a power vacuum and a lot of uncertainty. After having been reinstated as part of a political agreement with the military. So this strategy failed. And this strategy had not been supported by the streets, by the people. And I really think that if the situation is an impasse today, it's not only because the military are still in power and don't want to give up their power, but also because the street does not want to give up anything about its revolution. They are really attached to this revolution. As the Sudanese Professionals Association, a leading pro-democracy group, said, no negotiation, no partnership, and no compromise. When Volker Pertus, the UN's 
special representative for Sudan tries to promote a solution, an initiative. He denies everything about this initiative, but something about that has been announced a few days ago to end the violence and enter into a new process, removing the military from power, announcing a transitional legislative assembly, all these things. The people did not support this new initiative because they don't want any negotiation or compromise. So they are really attached to their revolution and they want to keep the integrity of this revolution. And that's why the success of such initiatives are very slim. And that's why the situation is so difficult right now. So turning to you, Mvamba Gizolele, with regard to Sudan, I'd like to get your take on the current status, the fact that the protesters have not been deterred from wanting to see a full transition to democracy, braving the military who have been using now live ammunition. We've seen lots of opposition to this by the judiciary and so forth. What are the primary obstacles? What is the military afraid of with respect to keeping to this transition that was agreed upon? Thank you, Carol. Sudan remains very important as a country. Sudan is the third largest country on the continent, and we know that they play a tremendous role in that part of the Horn, sitting between many regions in Africa, so the north and the south and the Horn itself. I mean, the north center, you know, right there above uh, South Sudan and DRC, Uganda and all that region. It's a pivotal country. Personally, I'm very encouraged by what's happening in Sudan in the sense that we've seen tremendous mobilization of young people on one side, and it's a unique case because Sudan has been successful in mobilizing both the urban and the rural youth. That doesn't happen often in many countries. It's also a success story in the sense that it's the middle class, the elites, you know, the professional association that have been able to connect with the rest of the population to mobilize. They've suffered some setbacks and very important setbacks, but I think the bigger struggle is still ongoing. As for the military, this is a system that has been military-centered for a long time. You know, as far as I can remember, as a young boy, Sudan was still in turmoil in the grip of military dictatorships. And another element is the religious element that has been added to it over the years with people like the late Turabi and others. At this point in time, through this tough time that they're going through, the military is vested in all kinds of interests, economics, political, and others. I think so there is fear of losing that power. I will suspect also that there may be fear of international justice. We saw that al-Bashir had been there and he was charged by the ICC and the international community wanted him to be judged. But I think it's just a matter of time before the voice of the people and the will of the people come to be realized. It's just a matter of time. So you're sounding a rather hopeful note and let's hope you know, you are correct. But we need now to turn to the Sahel. And so back to you, Ambassador Yad, because we're seeing extremism on the rise. It's causing alarm in European capitals here in Washington. And of course, even in ECOWAS, because ECOWAS, we know, has imposed sanctions, particularly on Mali, given the military coup and the delay of elections, which should be taking place next month, but which they say, have been delayed until 2026. Do you share the concerns by the EU, US and ECOWAS about what is going on? Yes, the situation, security situation is pretty challenging and worsening. The ECOWAS has imposed these structural sanctions that may have harder consequences on populations. Mali is really uh, isolated now, even from uh, its uh, own neighbours. 
I think for the military, it's a deadlock. And uh, I don't see how they can go out from this without negotiating with at least ECOWAS countries. At some point, after French troops withdraw, the international community, I think, will have to think about another strategy. Because Asimi Goita and his government and what he's doing, etc., we have here a true challenge about security in Sahel and in the whole African continent. Because some on the ground, some people talk about an Africanization of the jihad. Don't forget what's going on in Mozambique, for example. Don't forget what's going on on the western coastal states. Côte d'Ivoire and Benin have been recently under jihadist attacks. So it's very important to contain the jihadism on the African continent, which means that the military response is clearly not enough to overcome the terrorist threat. And they seem to be unable to address the roots of terrorist contagion, like uh, the lack of economic and social perspective for the young people, poverty, basic public services over large parts of the territory, the weakness of state services, poor governance, you know, all these kind of things play an important role in the humanitarian situation on the ground with all these displaced people in Mali, in Burkina Faso, children who suffer from severe malnutrition, who don't go to school anymore. All this humanitarian tragedy can cannot be solved only with a military option. And that's why it's so important to reorient the long-term social and economic development of the Sahel. That is what is at stake here to avoid an Afghan scenario. It's very important to mobilize the international community, which had pledged more than 400 million euros in 2018 to support the development effort and had paid nothing by the end of 2019. That's why I really think that the questions of development, climate, of job opportunities, of promotion of the role of women, etc., strengthening the rule of law, all these things are as crucial as a military answer on the side. Turning to you, Mbemba Dizoleli, to get your perspective on Sahel, the rise in extremism, which is causing alarm not only in the region, but in European capitals and in the United States. The crisis in Mali is an important one in magnitude, but it is not just because it's Mali, it's the entire Sahel space that is in turmoil of one kind or another. What's happening in Mali speaks to a lot of the issues that we find in many other countries, especially neighboring countries, Burkina Faso, Niger, but also further afield on the continent. These are issues of weak governance, non-respect of the social contract, non-respect of the people, citizens, and looting of resources and so on. So the engagement that has been taking place in Mali, in my view, has been heavily militarized. It's important to have a military action because obviously it's an armed conflict, but that has not addressed the overarching issues uh, that I've mentioned earlier. So now it is good to know that the U.S., for instance, has announced that they will be joining the what they call the Sahel Alliance. The Sahel Alliance is a consortium of various countries, mostly Europeans, donor countries, and you add to that the United Nations and the World Bank, and you have a few countries that are observer members. The U.S. had been an observer member for a while. Now they decided to join as a full member. That is key because the U.S. bring with it tremendous power. The U.S. has money, the U.S. has clout, the U.S. has gravitas. The Sahel Alliance is actually about investing 
in development, economic development projects. They have a number of projects that they want to invest in, and that will help address the issue that I mentioned uh, just a few moments ago, governance and all that. This kind of investment that does development, I hope that the donor countries and the members of this alliance will consider carving out a space for meaningful participation of the citizen so that they can have local ownership and local initiatives to the problems. Otherwise, it becomes a problem or an initiative of outsiders with the partners in government and it leaves out the citizens, and that will never solve the problem. A conversation to be continued. But for now, that's all the time we have on this edition of Encounter. I'd like to thank my guests, Ambassador Rama Yad, Director of the Africa Center at the Atlantic Council, and Mvemba Dizolele, Director of the Africa Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another encounter on The Voice of America.